Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the New Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. John Frederick. Well, this is 3.4, the work of the people, or on the death of conveyor belt churchianity. One of the things that really bugs me about the traditional church is the feeling of sitting in a seat while a few people do all the work. Is this the way that the church was meant to be? Even calling our meetings a service sometimes gets translated into a performance, and then the congregation comes to consume that performance, like a religious entertainment product. When I worked in the States training worship leaders, I would constantly hear folks who belonged to megachurches and all sorts of churches saying things like, when I'm leading from the stage, and then they'd go on to describe their ministry. And I'd think to myself, from the stage? Since when did the sanctuary of worship that is supposed to be facing upward toward God become a stage in which the gaze of the congregation turned audience becomes one that is fixed on you? Most of these churches even have folks employed who are called production managers. But was worship as the church ever meant to be thought of as a production, as an event? Or was it meant to be more like a family gathering? The earliest Christians met in houses, and when they did that, they said in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, verse 42, that what they did was devote themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Acts continues in verses 44 to 47 to describe the life of the early church, and it does it this way. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need, day by day, as they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Mind you, my friends, they did this without even a single pair of skinny jeans and without a single cut from the latest Hillsong album. How is that possible? And let's not just harp on megachurches, because for all my personal distaste for prepackaged Christianity, I actually rejoice that people are meeting Jesus wherever they're finding him. Praise God! For lots of people, that sort of thing isn't even a problem. They never question it. And since church has been set up that way, they assume that this is just the way it's meant to be. However, I don't think that it was ever meant to be the case that the church operates like a well-functioning conveyor belt of religious goods and services. For me and for many others, the idea of going to church is boring. We want to be part of something. We long to be active participants in the family of God rather than passive observers of a religious performance. We don't merely want to go to church. We want to be the church. And we think that church should look and feel less like a prepackaged performance and more like a family gathering on a porch. We do not desire to simply volunteer for a reoccurring role in the production. 
we desire to fundamentally change the ethos and approach to church itself so that it might evolve, so that it might emerge into something authentic with deep roots in the soil of past seasons of faithfulness from the saints through the ages, but with a flavor of renewal and realness that we can recognize as our own so that we can fully immerse ourselves in it and feel comfortable in the skin, so to speak, of the body of Christ. Well, it turns out that this is the view of Scripture as well. In 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 through 18, which we'll read in just a moment, Paul exhorts the church to honor her leaders. But he doesn't stop there. For Paul, and for the entire New Testament, the work of ministry is not the work of a professional class of clergy elite. The work of ministry is the work of the people. In 1 Peter chapter 2, we discover that the church is envisioned to be a kingdom of priests who offer spiritual sacrifices to God in worship. Likewise, in Romans 12, the church offers a singular living sacrifice of praise and worship to God. In this episode, we're going to explore how the New Testament envisions the church to be a fellowship in which all of God's people minister to one another, and gifted, called, and appointed leaders are meant to run out ahead and walk alongside of God's people, not to do the work of ministry for them, but as Ephesians 4 says, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So let's begin with 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 through 18, and then we'll read across Romans and 1 Peter and Ephesians to get a bigger picture of the church and how it is supposed to feel according to the New Testament. To me, it really is a breath of fresh air, as well as an invitation to reimagine the church to be a more lo-fi, organic family, rather than a form of spiritual entertainment. Hear the word of the Lord. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard, in love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive. Encourage the disheartened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Notice and hear how the Bible talks about the family of God, the brothers and sisters. They are to acknowledge those who, quote, work hard among you. In 1 Thessalonians, there is a heavy emphasis on references to ministry as work and labor, as we discovered in a past episode. We are exhorted by Paul to hold these people in the highest regard, to love them because of their work, which means their ministry. The first thing to note here is that there were people who did function in leadership roles in the early church. Just like every family, there are mothers and fathers, elders, guardians. In the family of the church, these exist as well. However, 
They are not envisioned to be a separate class of special people, the clergy, the ones who are doing all the work of the church and only them. Rather, they are fellow members of the body of Christ who have been gifted, equipped, and set apart by God to lead in particular ways. They deserve honor. They deserve respect, just like the mother and father of any family. But they are not thereby to be thought of as higher or better or more important than folks who do not occupy a leadership role. They exist to care for the family, to make sure it is healthy, to make sure it is fed by God's word and God's sacraments, and to identify the gifts of individuals in the congregation so that they can shepherd those gifts, making opportunities for everyone to help the body, as Ephesians 4 says, build itself up by means of love. Even here we get a hint of that, because Paul also exhorts the church to, quote, warn those who are idle and disruptive, and to make sure that everyone strives to, quote, do what is good for each other and for everyone else. And he says to do this by rejoicing, by praying, by giving thanks. For this, Paul says, is God's will for them. Perhaps more clearly than anywhere else, we see this sort of thing unpacked in Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 7 and 11 through 16, with, I would say, the greatest clarity in all of Scripture. So hear that word of God. I, therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. But each of us was given grace according to the measure of Christ's gift. The gifts he gave were that some would be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until all of us come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to maturity, to the measure of the full stature of Christ. We must no longer be children tossed to and fro, blown about by every wind of doctrine, by people's trickery, by their craftiness in deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we must grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined together by every ligament with which it is equipped, as each part is working properly, promotes the body's growth in building itself up in love. Notice what Paul says here. Each of us were given grace. And we were given this grace to perform the different roles of the body for the purpose of building up and equipping the saints. Now, when the New Testament refers to the saints, it is not making a reference to some special class of holy people like Mother Teresa. 
it is referring to all the members of the church. The word means those who have been set apart or consecrated as holy to God. What Paul is saying then is that God gives us, the saints, grace so that we all, not merely the lead minister, might be equipped to do the work of ministry. But equipped for what? Well, he tells us, equipped for two things. The first is the work of ministry and service, and the second is the work of building up the body of Christ, and they're related. Paul's theology is beautifully coherent. In first stressing the unity of the church in verses 1 through 6, he now explains the goal of this unity, the purpose of this unity. It's meant to grow us together as Christ's body. Later in the passage in verse 16, we find that through Christ, the head of the body, comes the energy which makes the body grow. But this growth comes precisely through our shared work together, as we are joined together by every ligament, and thereby equipped so that we together might grow in God as one body, building ourselves up by means of living and speaking the truth in love. It's a beautiful picture. And it's very organic. Whereas elsewhere, the family metaphor has been highlighted. Here, the body metaphor is given the focus. And notice that Paul doesn't say, you have all been given a ticket to the event and a seat in which you can passively enjoy God's professional ministers deliver an inspiring spiritual performance. He says rather that we've all been given grace to contribute to contribute to the health of a body so that together we might experience life, love. We might experience growth. Likewise, in Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, we see a picture of the church as the body of Christ, and we're at worship together. Hear the word of God. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your minds. Then, then you'll be able to test and approve what is God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For by the grace given to me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as one body exists with many members and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body and each member belongs to each other. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. Like the passage in Ephesians, and like the discourse about the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 12, 
Paul here highlights that different gifts have been given to individuals in the body of Christ. It is a key point to remember. Not everyone is a gifted preacher. Not everyone is a teacher. Not everyone needs to be pitching in on the music ministry. In fact, if they're not gifted in those areas, they shouldn't be participating in those areas. As annoying as it is to have the church turned into a performance, it is even worse when the church is turned into a free-for-all amateur hour. We often allow this sort of thing under the guise of getting people involved, but we've got to be good parents. We've got to shepherd and delegate according to people's actual gifting and to use wisdom about the roles of each person in a service. We're all different, and that's good. Perhaps, though, what is most striking of all here is that we, plural, are to offer our bodies, plural, as a single living sacrifice. Notice it is not just our intellect. It is not just our two hours on a Sunday morning. This is offering our bodies, our whole selves, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, together as a singular act of worship. We are one body, you see. And the way we grow is by working and worshiping as one people, one family in God, together. Paul says, this is your true and proper worship. So it is the giving of ourselves for what he calls the renewal and transformation of our minds. That is why we worship. We're not meant to be passively absorbing a performance. We're not meant to be actively consuming a religious product that makes us feel good. Instead, worship is meant to make us change how we feel, change how we think, and transform what we desire. It is, indeed, a sacrifice of our desire for the good of all, and it is how the many become one in Christ. Now, there is much more that we could say here, but we've reached the end for today, and I want to encourage you this week to read through First and Second Peter, and as you do, to really focus particularly on 1 Peter chapter 2. And you'll find there's some themes that really line up with everything that we've been exploring today. And you'll be able to continue to let Scripture interpret Scripture as you develop a robust biblical theology of the church through the writings of the New Testament. I'll catch you next time as we start section four of this series. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.